Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and John Zipper is my co-host, who's also with the Commonwealth Club. John, thank you so much for having us in this beautiful building. I say that every week, but you just got to turn around if you're here uh, right with us. Is That's San Francisco. It's so beautiful. Yeah, we <laughs> actually have the audience facing away from the windows because otherwise they would just stare at the bay all day. All the and program. ignore everybody else. Yeah. It's always great to have you here. Every Thursday at noon, uh, we do a special taping, and the point of it is to include LGBTQI thought leaders into a conversation that has an intersectional approach to social justice issues that we may face as a community. And so uh, the audio is available later that day at 4 o'clock on Progressive Voices Network, or you can find it at michellemeow.com. If you are a current Commonwealth Club member, congratulations. You're amazing. If you're not, you should consider it, uh, especially if you like what you are experiencing here. The Commonwealth Club is home to so many great conversations, and a lot of great people come through, like Sean Penn. Sean Penn is going to be here, I believe it's on Monday, yes. No, <gasps> not in this beautiful building, though. No, That'll be somewhere awesome. much bigger, somewhere much bigger. So uh, consider it. We have a great program for you. Our first guest is a 22-year veteran serving as public defender. Um, she came out here at, 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 in the beautiful San Francisco as a queer woman and now has a family of her own, is running for judge, uh, seat 11 here in San Francisco. Let's welcome Nikki Solis to the program. Nikki, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. So before we get into, you know, the really hard questions and asking you why you're running for judge, we always like to kick off with uh, just talking a little bit about yourself and introducing you. I had read, you know, in your bio that you came here uh, and was undocumented at, uh, for a few years until at least three years old. Is that right? Actually, till I until I was a teenager. So mm -hmm. my parents came here with my six brothers and sisters and me and brought us here. And I was one. And I grew up undocumented, and I know what it feels like to, you know, fear deportation and fear uh, what was then INS, but what is now ICE. And so it was. It was a very um, intense time. Almost every day, you know, you think about the repercussions of being found out. Um, your your parents are. How did how how did. Did everyone in the family eventually become documented, or, or did some people leave, or is this still an issue? Uh, actually, my um, my parents uh, ended up divorcing when I was about eight, and um, my dad raised most of us, all of us, really, as a single dad. My mom remarried and married a, a citizen, and when she became um, legal, when she got her papers, her green card, because I was under 18, I automatically... Um, got my green card, and so I was fortunate. But what, what, did, did the fear then go away, or it did in some ways? But then there were other um, family members who weren't eligible, oh. and so, for instance, my dad, he had to wait until the the passage of the amnesty bill that Tip O'Neill and and most people give Ronald Reagan the credit, but Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan right. um, made a deal on it, and that's what how we all became uh, legal. And so then you've not had to face any discrimination whatsoever since then, am I right? I, I, yeah, I wish. Ride. I wish, I wish. Well, you know, I'm a lesbian woman of color, and um, even 
in in high school and in, in college I knew that I was different mm -hmm. and what prompted me to come to San Francisco I grew up in in New York in the South Bronx actually and what prompted me to to move here was this idea that um, I could be out here and I could be myself here and so somehow San Francisco became a possibility and I came out here and it never went back I always thought of myself as a New Yorker but when I landed here sight unseen um, I fell in love and I love this city and now I've, I've made it my home for almost 30 years. Oh. And serving the community in a lot of ways as public defender. I think, uh, you know, when you think of somebody who's willing to serve the community in that way, uh, there, there are a lot of, you, you, let's just put it this way, you care. You know, you, you care. Um, so let's talk about, you know, how you got into the work. And well, and Jeff Adachi is a public defender. I'm just a deputy public defender. Yeah. Uh, but um, when I was uh, in college and finishing up, my um, brother called me and said my sister-in-law was um, going through a hard time. She was a heroin addict. And um, she got arrested. And she actually got a sentence of 10 years in prison. And he had to raise money in order to get her out of the situation, get her into rehab. Um, they were uh, separated at the time, but he wanted, obviously, his son to grow up with, with a mom. And so after that experience and figuring that, look, it's not right that you have to raise money in order to uh, get a rehabilitation program. You shouldn't have to get a private attorney. Maybe I should go help out these public defenders who um, seem to need a little bit of, of help. And... Um, I picked up the phone and I called the public defender's office. They asked me if I was a law student, and I said, no, I'm not. And they said, well, we usually take law students as interns. And so I said, okay, I'll go to law school. So my singular purpose was to be a public defender when I went to law school. And I, I went to Hastings because it was literally walking distance to the public defender's office. I interned there my second year in law school, and then I, I got a job there. I, I applied and was fortunate enough to be hired by Jeff Brown, who was then the public defender. That's so incredible. That's some like Aaron Brockovich stuff. I mean, but, you know, personal to the experience that you faced. Um, I mean, J John had just mentioned you wanted to talk about uh, why you wanted to serve in this way. But now it's at a different level in running for judge. I think that in listening to some of your uh, messaging in your campaign, we talk about uh, things like the broken justice system or the criminal system and the, how there needs to be some changes. What are those changes? Well, I think that if, and I was explaining to John, um, if you were, someone would, were to tell you that in a city, in a country, that let's say 55% um, of the LGBTQI folks were incarcerated, you would think, that's a major problem. That seems like a discriminatory practice just by the statistical data. What we have right now in San Francisco is that 55% uh, of African-Americans make up those who are incarcerated in, in San Francisco, even though um, African-Americans are less than five or even 4% yeah. of the population yeah. right now. So there is a problem. And so what is motivating me here is the fact that we're not addressing the problem. We had 285,000 beds slept in in the county jail in the course of a year, according to the Quattron study and the Haywood Burns Institute studies that were conducted. There were independent studies. And of those beds, again, African-Americans made up more than 55% of um, those uh, the people who are sleeping in, in those beds. So I think we have a, a problem here in San Francisco that's 
irrefutable. And, you know, we talk about politics being a zero-sum game, but it's almost worse than that in the sense that a zero-sum game, one person gains and the other person loses. Here, everybody's losing because of the system is so broken that we have people who are victimized, people who um, are being, uh, their cars are being broken into. We have that aspect, and then we have people who are uh, incarcerated. We have a money bail system that's been held unconstitutional uh, recently in the Humphrey, People versus Humphrey decision. So what we have here, we're all losing, and a lot of people are suffering, and a lot of people are fed up, and I decided, you know what, instead of talking about it and fighting against it as a public defender, I wanna go over to the Hall of Justice and talk about these issues and make changes, and I think we need sweeping changes in the criminal justice system. And what, what could you, as a judge, do that you can't do in, in your current role or in any other role? Well, just for example, when um, I was a, um, a young public defender about 21 years ago, we had a client who um, was uh, very successful. She was, I believe she had uh, attended UCLA um, and she had a mental health problem. And one day uh, we walked into court and she was supposed to be on the, ca the court's calendar. We found out that she had um, committed suicide. And you know, the sadness in the room was so palpable because we had all seen her struggle yeah. and we all very much cared about her. And the judge um, at the time was a, a judge who from then on, along with a public defender, Jenny Johnson, um, decided that this is not acceptable. We need something different in our criminal justice system. And that was pretty much a tipping point, I believe, for the start of um, uh, Behavioral Health Court, which is a national model court for mental health treatment with wraparound services through citywide case manager, Department of Public Health. So one judge seeing that issue can make a huge difference. And then there were other judges who came after who actually made the court grow as well. But it, it, you, you need someone in that role and in a leadership role in order to um, really push for that kind of big change. I want to touch on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's very serious as far as... Um, you know, somebody's life, especially here in San Francisco, as we experience income inequality and this wealth gap and poverty being, uh, or somebody, you know, who's experiencing poverty in their lifetime here in San Francisco could be incarcerated for, for that. And what I'm talking about is if a local legislator wants to uh, pass a bill, for example, that criminalizes the homeless, or somebody who's homeless, who's somebody who's sleeping on the sidewalk, and, and they end up in the court system. It's really up to uh, a judge in some ways to look at that and examine in what ways they could either help the individual or they get caught up in that system. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts and opinion about what's happening or what has happened in San Francisco, which isn't necessarily any one department's fault. You know, it's not the supervisors, not the mayor. I think it's a, it's like a buildup of a lot of things. But what are we going to do about that, um, which I think causes a lot of congestion. And I think it, it causes a lot of issues for individuals to get back out there in the world and rehabilitate themselves so that there's empowerment for a much more equitable life. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. But there is uh, criminalization of the poor here in San Francisco. I mean, we have the, the you know, no sleeping on the sidewalk um, legislation. And so what we, I think, need to do is um, have those changes implemented through this court with all the stakeholders at the table. For instance, 
when um, then Gavin Newsom, Mayor then Mayor Gavin Newsom was in office, he wanted to create the neighborhood court in the Tenderloin. And so I was on the criminal justice committee, uh, criminal justice court steering committee, in order to create that court that gives wraparound services. So the the point being that we see a problem, and we see that people, not only the people who are might be offenders, are suffering, but we see that they, it's actually impacting and having a ripple effect on the entire community. And um, you know, as a mom, obviously I care. I care about the city that my kids grow up in, and so I believe that we need to do something different. And um, this is a way to do something different. Uh, historically, according to the California Constitution, judges are elected, and they are elected for six-year terms, and they have to stand for election. And so we have four public defenders running because we believe that we need to make an impact and we need to have sweeping changes in the judiciary because the judiciary is a key component, obviously, of the criminal justice system. And what's happening right now is simply not working. It's very, very broken. I don't think that anyone you meet who's lived here would say everything is fine. I don't think anyone would say that. I think we would all agree it's broken. And so what we need to do is expand these um, collaborative courts. I want to see, I would love to see um, restorative justice courts in San Francisco that um, involve the, the judges, the prosecutor, the public defenders, the private bar, um, and, and bring all those stakeholders to the table and, and do something different for our community because we really are in desperate need of it. We had 30,000 auto burglaries in one year. Speaking of sweeping changes, and you mentioned this earlier, which was the bail bond system. We had a program on that uh, last year or so that really was incredibly eye-opening. Just talking about the, that's where you really get the criminalization of poverty, where people who should be able, if you have the money, you're, you know, you're going to go through um, arraignment and, and such, you're probably not going to end up in prison or jail. But if you don't, <laughs> And your family doesn't ha can't come up with sometimes really piddly amounts of money, but if you do not have that money, y you're incarcerated. Um, and there are some attempts right now afoot, um, as I understand, there are some movements to do away with it or radically change it. Can you talk a bit about it and, and what you think should be done about the bail bond system? Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, the in the Humphrey decision, it's uh, People versus Humphrey that came down recently. Um, what the Court of Appeals found is that a money bail system is unconstitutional. And um, even, you know, look, look using the, the lowest standard in its analysis, uh, what we have are, for instance, a single mom who can't pay a $15,000 bail uh, incarcerated until the end of her case, which occurred um, in San Francisco. And so what we did as public defenders um, is that we push for bail reform through, led, through um, litigation. And um, it's clear, but here's the thing. The judges are the ones who set the bail schedule. Mm -hmm. So the judges of the Superior Court decide what a, a, a crime is worth, essentially. And they say, okay, if you commit an auto burglary, um, we will set the bail, for instance, let's say $15,000, and that's the bail schedule, and that's the default. So even before you go to court, if you want to bail out, you have to have that money. 
And so what it re results in is that if you have money, you go free. And think about it. When you have a case, and if you're an innocent person, and you're incarcerated just because you don't have the money, you are at a disadvantage because you can't go out with your lawyer and actually explain things or even help the lawyer as much you know, as you could if you were incarcerated, right? If you're out of custody, you can actually help your public defender with your case. So, and, and, and then they record jail phone calls. You have no privacy, obviously, you're in jail. So there are all these things that flow from it that just make it so unfair. And because it's just based on money, um, this, is, this is a real problem. And it's a real problem for those who are um, living in poverty. And even if you're innocent or even if you're overcharged, uh, you are at a disadvantage simply because you're poor. And it can be life ruining even if, as you said, you're, right. because if you've got kids who are dependent upon you or other people in your family who are dependent upon you, and uh, you're already poor, and now perhaps the breadwinner in the family right. is in prison. And your children sure. will go to CPS if there's no one to take care of them. You will lose your job. Yeah. Um, all these things that flow from it are just, it just puts people in that cycle, and it just keeps going into that cycle of poverty. Perfect example of, no, of, of everyone losing. You know, mm -hmm. That person loses, that person's parents lose. Just taxpayers lose. They're then paying for the kids to be taken care of while they're paying for imprisonment, which is incredibly expensive. Um, you know, it's just yeah. all around something that desperately needs to be fixed. We're going to open up for Q and A in just a little bit. So if you do have a question in mind, go ahead and grab this this mic here. They've also court, got a mic or oh, you do have a, a, okay, great. We, <laughs> I was trying to be prepared. We're, we're double oh, mic. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Um, my question before we open it up to Q&A is uh, around the prison industrial complex or private prisons and how someone like you is running for, for judge. I mean, in making a decision that can send somebody to, to prison, there's so much that private citizens like myself question that. Like if there's that system and it's making somebody money, I would imagine that someone like yourself who's speaking up against this system or how it's broken, that you would be a threat to you know the money that's supposed to flow in that way. Uh, and I, I'm, I, I'm talking about it and not really calling it f for what I would like to call it, which is you know corruption um, in fear that somebody else is listening to this and secretly taping and I might not make it out of this building. <laughs> but yeah, but, what are your thoughts? But even as John said, um, you know, even the the taxpayers are losing. You know, we are contributing to this type of uh, industrial complex that is draining us of our resources. And so, um, I I really believe in judges visiting the prisons um, to which they they send folks. When I was an intern at the district attorney's office a long, long time ago, um, I interned at the district uh, attorney's office in the, in the Bronx. Um, when I was a law student, a judge, Judge Torres, took the students who were willing to go on a tour of all the prisons in, in New York State uh, in the area. Mm -hmm. And we went to Sing Sing, and we went to Bedford Hills and a few others. And it's so important for um, the decision makers, like you say, to understand what solitary confinement looks like, to understand what that reception center at San Quentin looks like 
I've seen it, um, to understand where are we sending folks and what are we doing and what are they doing there? I worked in the, you know, volunteered for the Squires program, which is a, a was run at, at Juvenile Hall, where um, juvenile offenders would go to San Quentin and talk to the lifers, kind of like a scared straight, but that was, it. this predated it. Um, um, the Squires program has been established for decades. And sitting and talking to folks and seeing how they live and how, for instance, ironing their clothes and having certain creases are so important to them. Um, their lives are just so uh, compressed. Yeah. Uh, it's just really, really uh, disheartening to think that in a drop of a dime, we will uh, send folks there and not really see where we're sending folks. And so as a judge, obviously, um, I, would, I would make sure that I know where I'm sending folks to. Great, thank you so much, Nikki. And now we'll open it up to questions for Nikki. Hey, Nikki, um, you're such an inspiration to me as a young uh, lesbian professional. I'm just wondering what some of your goals are uh, once you're in the judge position and what you would say to other young professional lesbians who are looking to do work and help change the system. Yeah, thank you, Ave. Um, you know, the thing about being a judge, it seems to me, is that they tend to isolate. And I don't think that that is something that, as a judge, you, you should do and certainly I wouldn't do. Um, and so mentoring um, younger professionals would be very important. And um, just as I have as a lawyer, I've mentored law students or undergrads. Uh, undergrads, I say, hey, you should go to law school. I'll write a letter of recommendation. You do good work. I think as, as a judge, a judge should um, mentor lawyers to become judges. And what I say to um, the, the uh, professionals, uh, whether or not you're a lawyer, it's important to be in your community. It's important to be involved in your community and know what's going on. And it's, and it's about hard work and actually immersing yourself. And sure, as a judge, you have to be fair and you have to have equality under law and you have to have unbiased decision making. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a, a per, this perspective um, that you need to have to make your decision-making more uh, constructive. And I think part of that is actually continuing to be a part of your community. And so, and, and you know, as far as a, a young professional taking risk, this was a huge risk for me. I mean, I, I'm a public defender. I've been a public defender for 22 years, and I read The Growth Mindset, a book by Carol Dweck, and I said to my kids, you really have to have a growth mindset. You have to take risk. And I came back from vacation, and I thought, what am I doing? Am I taking risk? I've been doing the same thing for 22 years, and I see injustice, and I see incarceration, and I see you know, the brokenness of the system. What am I doing about it? So this is what I decided to do. And I think for particularly women, women of color, lesbians, I think it's important for us to support each other and I think it's important for us to run for office and stand up. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. I mm -hmm. never imagined that it would be like this, but honestly, it's been an amazing experience. I'm humbled by it 
And I have a lot of gratitude uh, for it because people have been so supportive. I've had support from Ma Raphael Mandelman and Bevan Dufty and Mark Leno and so many people in, in the community, Harvey Milk Club and um, the San Francisco Women's Political Committee. So I've just been really blessed and fortunate. But you don't know what you're capable of until you really try. And whether or not you, you, you fail, you have to try. You have to stretch yourself. You have to have that grit and you have to have that growth mindset and you just have to go for it. And so that's what I would say. Even if it involves a risk, a, a great risk, do it. It's so timely. I was in a meeting earlier this morning where it was like, am I losing myself? Am I? It was just uh, that it was involving the Pride Parade broadcast, and I produced that. And uh, uh, anyway, we're we're partnering now with a big network, and so they're they got all kinds of decisions that they've made that I didn't know that they made, and and uh, so then I was like, oh, have I sold myself? Have I sold the organization to the soul? But I think you're right. We have to take the risk because we need a network like this three-letter network we're partnering with, CBS, uh, to, uh, to send the messages. Questions? Um, hi, I used to work in the San Francisco jail at San Bruno as an instructor with the Five Keys Charter School. And um, Thank you for that work. Uh, thanks. I've been just really horrified by our, our country's willingness to put people in cages at, you know, for, for everything. And... Um, so I, um, I, I know you mentioned about the uh, uh, different ways to reduce bail, keep people out of jail, and I just can't understand why we don't spend a lot of the money that's spent on either uh, beds and food in jail and money that's spent on having, you know, uh, maybe it costs more time for people to uh, help their clients in jail, use that money for things like ankle bracelets. And we have so much technology that why wouldn't bail bonds people kind of go into the ankle bracelet business or somehow just move those funds into a way that doesn't make people lose their jobs and their homes and their family um, to go be locked up all the time. Um, uh, there's a, an issue that requires them to wait for court. Yeah, I mean, and that's what the Humphrey decision involved, right, is are there less restrictive alternatives, right? And so when you talk about the, the bail industry, it's, a, it's obviously a powerful industry and in, in a, in, in a million-dollar, if not billion-dollar industry. Um, and they will find a way to shift, right? Like you said, uh, you have some good ideas for them to do alternatives, right? And so... We have to find a different way. We cannot continue to incarcerate people at such a high rate where my children, because they're two young, you know, 12 and 10 year old um, black boys, they're gonna be 10 times more likely to be convicted of a crime in their city, in the city they live in, 10 times more likely um, than their white counterparts. I can't stand up and watch that and just stand idly by and watch that happen, and that they're seven times more likely to get arrested, simply arrested, simply based on the color of their skin. I just can't stand idly by and watch it happen. So they will have um, a different way to make money. Losing a part of an industry is not the end of the world if we don't need it as a society, right? And the money bail system is just not the system that we've found to be constitutional. I can say that. Even if I'm running for judge, I'm limited as to what I can say. 
I was just wondering, was that case, the Humphrey case, um, did that have something to do with like a debtor's prison? How was it unconstitutional? That it, it was just the, the, the fact is that Humphrey had stolen perfume and his bail was set at 600 over $600,000 because of some, uh, some of the allegations that were attendant to them, right? And so the bail schedule had provided for this. And so um, we at the Public Defender's Office did a bail motion to reduce it or to get him released. And what happened was it was reduced to 350000 And so that's still not low enough for Mr. Humphrey, who's an indigent defendant represented by the Public Defender's Office, to um, post. It's, it's impossible for him to post that bail. And bail is meant for someone to, to assure that they, they will return to court, right? It's not to keep them in, but it's to make sure they return, that they have the incentive. And so it has to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And what we had here was the city and county of San Francisco and the courts and the judiciary setting a bail system based on a schedule that obviously, according to the courts, um, wasn't taking into account the ability to pay. So you have to take in th that into account. Any other questions as we wind down our conversation with the incredible Nikki Solis, who's running for judge, seat 11, uh, San Francisco Superior Court? Nikki, I want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing your thoughts and your ideas. And uh, these conversations, you know, whether you get that seat or not, are so important to have. And we are very lucky to have you serve the community in the way that you do as public defender and hopefully as judge. Um, thank you. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> so come back soon. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming. We're going to take a quick short break. And for those who are here sitting with us, our next guest is here. Don't get too excited. Don't squeal. Don't scream. Don't yell. Um, as we uh, transition into having Silas Howard uh, up here uh, as our guest. And Nikki, you'll, you'll join us. Absolutely. Awesome. I'm starstruck, so I'm just like, <laughs> Silas is like, she's weird, because I'm just standing here waving. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders.
we went to the first appointment and my mom, Yvette, and I were in the room as they do that first ultrasound and he was like this small. Little peanut. Yeah, but you could see the heartbeat. It was just pounding. I just cried. My mom cried. Yvette cried. It was, it was very powerful. Started with my dream. Now here's a heartbeat. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and this is John Zipper, our co-host. Hello again. And uh, just uh, if you're joining us right now, uh, the Michelle Miao Show here at the Commonwealth Club is always on at Thursdays at noon, and we include LGBTQI thought leaders into uh, an intersectional conversation about social justice and the arts, politics, community, culture. It is taped, so it'll air on Progressive Voices Network at 4 o'clock, Western Time, Michelle Miao Time, uh, what <laughs> else, PST, Pacific Standard Time. Um, you got it. <laughs> and you can, or you can head to michellemeow.com. So our next guest, we're super, super, super excited to have. We've been waiting for this moment uh, to talk to him. And that is because uh, he's incredible. He's great. He's got a new movie out. It's called A Kid Like Jake. And it uh, just uh, opened up for the San Francisco International Film Festival. I think yesterday uh, I had the honor of being able to screen it privately. So we'll talk about that. Uh, he's a director and actually, I think, the first out trans director of an Emmy Award-winning show like Transparent, in which he's, he directed a couple episodes or a few uh, in season two. So let's welcome Silas Howard to the program. Silas, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me. I'm I mean, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I was like, wait, I'm saying the same. I'm happy to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Silas Howard show now. It's the Silas Howard show. You know, that goes to show how excited I am, at least, and how giddy and uh, starstruck. Um, but uh, congratulations Thank on you. A Kid Like Jake, starring Claire Danes and Jim Parsons, who play a married couple and have a child who d displays gender variant or transgender leanings. Mm -hmm. um, where do I want to start with you? I think I want to start with just talking about you first, and then we'll get into the movie and everything else. Uh, I had read your Wikipedia, and I never know who actually writes the I don't know Wikipedia. either. Yeah, but I thought it was interesting that in the description it was like, you know, Silas was comfortable as an out-butch lesbian and then transition, and I, I was just wondering, like, did you write that yourself? No, I didn't, actually. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, somebody from who was in film school wrote me and said my, you know, our, was their school assignment was to write a Wikipedia for a filmmaker that Seriously? they liked. And did I mind? And I think I didn't mind. I don't even know that I got back to them. But then there it was. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely have um, my godson described to me what I am, an in-betweener, because um, that was his term when he was two for his imaginary friend. He was like, not a boy or a girl, in-betweener, like you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I lived really so much of my life as a gender nonconforming, um, uh, butch, and um, queer, and uh, came of age in San Francisco and moved here in 89 and sort of landed in the middle of uh, a lot of activism around, you know, ACT UP and meeting a lot of amazing mentors and uh, unfortunately AIDS was taking a lot of people away. So as, as a young person that really sort of, I think, formed, uh, uh, inf infused me with an urgency around storytelling um, and that if you don't see things reflected, it's kind of, you're going to be the one to do it because certainly at that time there was very little representation around uh, queer storytelling. In film. 
And and you were involved in a punk band for years, right? Yes, ten years. Ten. They were at the show. Not everybody, but really? like uh, Lenny and Leslie, Leslie Mon, Lenny Breedlove were um, at the screening, and uh, we all, yeah, we're like family. So yeah, tribe eight. What what made you want to then get into visual storytelling? I mean, that's obviously a very different thing than sure music. Um, I feel like again coming out of that age where there was like, I often put it that you know success was nowhere on the horizon so we couldn't fail and was just like just do it it's just like you know Harry and I Harry Dodge and I who I made my first feature with opened up this little hole in the wall cafe and there was a bunch of performance and tribate was going on and we were traveling and seeing a lot of squats and we were sort of playing in between spaces because we were in a punk scene um, a lot of gay people are like oh, punk music and punks were like oh you're queer but you're punk so you know like we kind of again we sort of when and played, we're in betweeners, so we got to play a lot of places, and it, and I got to see a lot of um, amazing art spaces that inspired me to start one with with my community, mm-hmm. and um, so we were we really we curated shows. I think also because we wanted to perform, so I think it opened up a, a way for us to. I feel like in San Francisco we were taking turns being in that in that era, '90s, early '90s, '91, '92. We were taking turns being the important person in the room for each other. It's like, you're going to perform and we're going to listen. Now you get up there. And so, but we also um, had shows where, you know, Jewel Gomez read or Kate Bornstein or Justin Vivian Bond. So it was like new people with some more experienced people. Um, Jacqueline Woodson. Like when I look at some of our old flyers, I'm just like, wow, all these people were at, at this little hole in the wall cafe. So uh, visual uh, or storytelling is really my passion. So film was came out of um, just wanting to see something I didn't see. And Harry Dodge and I, you know, having, Harry did, was doing amazing theater, solo shows, and um, we just wanted to tell a story of a friendship. And so that kind of drove it. Let's talk about storytelling and this uh, concept of authenticity. You know, the LGBTQ community is experiencing uh, great, you know, big surges as far as like social acceptability, the media now paying attention, people really diving into the education of what the community is all about, which is super great. But when we start talking about like authentic depictions of our lived experiences, our lives, I think that gets harder to include in film, especially in Hollywood. Uh, But you've done a, a great job in telling those stories. Thank you. And so I wanted to ask about, you know, just is it that difficult? Um, uh, How do the storylines get picked up? What's important to you as far as like being inclusive of our authentic stories? Yeah, it is difficult. (laughs) Um, I didn't get the memo that making film, doing doing independent film helped if you actually like came from money or had money. Like I, my dad was <laughs> a cab driver. I grew up in a small town. I, I had no Hollywood royalty. Um, maybe the benefit is I wasn't afraid of not having money because I grew up without it. So I kind of took risks kind of off, you know, I was like, well, but yeah, it's a conservative field because of the money. It's so much money. And you start to see where, you know, my whole life, I feel like I've been told you can't center your story, whoever your is, you know, like anybody, you know, it, it, that's that's not like you know a straight white man for so long in Hollywood is not sent you know it's like oh you have to be the side character you have to be this or that and um, that is shifting I feel like 
you know, people are like, oh, you know, you're, we're breaking into TV, but I feel like TV's breaking into us. You know, yeah. I feel like they're going, oh, actually, lived experience is valuable and gives good story. So even on the just most base, like, capitalistic thing, they understand that, like, our lived lives and the authenticity are what makes the story universal. And so, you know, shows like Transparent and shows that I've worked on, like, The Fosters and... Um, uh, I just did an episode of a show called Step Up that is based off the franchise, but the storylines are like these really amazing storylines around race and class, but all told through character. And I'm on a new Ryan Murphy show. Janet Mock is in the writer's room. Stephen Canals, who's Afro-Latino, Bronx-raised, queer writer, uh, set in New York in the 1980s with five trans women of color as the leads of the show. Um, so that's going to be really incredible. I haven't seen that yet. And um, so I'm... Uh, producing director on that with a bunch of other people. So you're seeing that shift, but it takes like a Ryan Murphy to bring that story because Steven, the younger writer, took it everywhere and was told by studios, you can't do that. You can't center, you know, um, POC, queer, trans stories and TV. And, you know, so it is very difficult because of the money and because of who ho who are the gatekeepers. But it's shifting, and you know we're seeing it all over all the, you know, the data that we've been told about who can helm movies and what can go internet is just being shattered now by you know Black Panther and Ava DuVernay's stuff, and it's just, you know, I think that um, that's it's exciting, you know, because narrative has a lot of potential, especially again centering, you know, and and letting our lives be full, the characters be full. So um, I'm feeling optimistic. I'm, I'm in the apocalypse. I'm apocalyptimist. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's, my, that's my new identity. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, there were things were just starting to change from just kind of the old three networks and PBS to more independent stations and then Fox and others came along. But um, with and then, you know, hundreds of, of cable channels certainly allowed micro-targeting but now we're seeing these new platforms yeah. that have tons of money and are willing to take some pretty big risks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that's got to be, I mean, and, and it's weird. Here are the money people coming in and they're, you know, they're yeah. looking for transparent. They're yeah. looking for um, things that they know are not on every other platform. So yeah. the, it seems like we're at a good time to yeah. really try to get out there and, and give different voices and different faces a, a, a shot. Of yeah, and curate a room that has different voices. You know, I just love that there's a writing, writer's room with, you know, with Janet Mock and Ryan Murphy and Stephen Canals and, like, all of their experience coming, you know, together is, is you know, something I haven't seen, you know, happen in a writer's room I'm really excited about. And, yeah, it's starting to happen more. Okay, so talk about Transparent. How did that come about? How did you get involved? Um, that was through, uh, I knew some of the writers. Um, that was, again, a room that was being curated differently. So um, when season one happened, my friend Ali Liebegat was one of the writers who I know from San Francisco. He's uh, a poet, um, an amazing memoirist, funny, um, but touching writer. And when I saw that, that Jill had hired... Allie was up here working at Rainbow Grocery and basically got plucked and brought in. And I was like, oh, something different's happening here, yeah. you know. And um, I, so I hope it does well because it's, they're pushing against some of the ways, you know, the access they're allowing. And, um, you know, I reached out to Jill on Facebook. And I was like, I know we have a ton of people. And she got coffee with me. And this was before, this was when season one was happening. And um, I interviewed and didn't, didn't get hired, but they were really, really sweet. Nisha um, 
Ganatra got hired, who's an amazing director and did sort of half the season with Jill. Then I got brought on for season two. And again, Amazon pushed back because of the budget of my work. And um, uh, Andrew Sperling, one of the producers, was very frustrated and, you know, was like, oh, they don't know how to read queer indie cinema. And I was like, well, their show is built a lot <laughs> on that. But yeah. um, and she was like saying to them, well, if Silas had access to budget, his work would have a higher budget. But, the st you know, it was trying to break down the math of like when you do stories that are not fitting in. Anyway, they pushed pushed to get me on and that was a great uh, break for me and then I was they were very happy with my work and I came back on season 3 and um did two episodes and also uh worked uh, as a consulting producer on the first half and then I didn't work last season because I was on uh, Kid Like Jake. But it was a big break and um it was really great to have to make uh, a living wage I hadn't yet after 15 years of directing had that um, exciting opportunity and I'm I'm sure liking it wow yeah. it, it really <laughs> is exciting and incredible that uh it all sounds so you know organic and not the tr the traditional Hollywood stories that we might have heard before in getting a big break um, yeah I mean I will just add for yeah. anyone who's a filmmaker it I I um I wasn't waiting for that. I never stopped trying, mm -hmm. but I really had to take a step back. And, and I, when I, I had moved back to New York and made smaller work um, to, to stay inspired and to remember why. And that, I think, was, was a big part of feeling successful was my community supporting me and making the, that uh, smaller budget work and telling stories of people in our community. So Right, yeah. right. Well, let's talk about A Kid Like Jake, uh, which, again, I had the honor of seeing. Thank you uh, for allowing me to see it. And, I, I mean, there, I have so many questions and so many feelings I got from it. And the, the, one of, one of the, the feelings that I got was, you know, just frustration with the parents, yeah. uh, Claire Danes and Jim Parsons uh, plays. I think Jim's character's name is Greg Wheeler. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and, uh, and, and Claire Danes' mom is Alex. And she plays the, you know, struggling, tormented female so well. Mm -hmm. So it felt like the, the movie was very much focused on the uh, dynamics of family, yeah. but family who really don't understand, you know, gender identity or trying to understand. And you would think Greg Wheeler, who, who is a, a licensed therapist, would just get it. But even he struggled to communicate with his wife on what was going on with their, their son, um, who might be transgender. Yeah. So I would love to hear your thoughts and kind yeah. of like, you know, the process of what's going through my mind as the viewer. Yeah. Um, just to, in terms of what attracted yeah, me like, to I the mean, project. In terms of like the, is that what the focus is? Is to yeah. really talk about how we, as a society, mm. uh, even in, uh, if you want to get microscopic as a family, mm -hmm. don't talk enough about gender identity, don't know, you know, uh, characteristics, what to look for. How do we articulate? Yeah. How do we process with each other? What uh, might be going on? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, Jim Parsons uh, is one of the producers and one of the stars of it. And his this was one of the, his company's first projects. And he, it was, he's just an incredible uh, person to work with. And uh, Claire was also attached when I came on. So I, I came into the project and um, worked with the writer on some adjustments. Uh, it was a young queer writer. It's actually mostly queer creative team. Um, and uh, I, uh, but what I, what I loved about it was that it was really, you know, at first counterintuitive to me to not show the gender expansive kid, but I really felt committed that Jake, especially at age four, 
he, he may grow up to be anything, you know, but clearly he's invested in this thing and it, already the shame is starting or the sort of restriction or the fear. And so f intentionally flipping the camera to the world around Jake was, was really a, a very, uh, you know, important decision to me as a director. Um, and that it was that this kid could be different in any sort of ways. And I don't have kids, but I'm a teacher and I have godsons and I just see how primal it changes you when you have a little person that you're caring for. And I, and I wanted to actually show that whether you're in Brooklyn or you're in the Midwest or whatever, these are confusing things. And the confusion is actually can, can lead to so much good, you know, if we don't just shut it down. And so I wanted the, I, I loved in the script, Daniel, a beautiful, you know, organic, realistic conversation of just how hard it is within the home to just talk to each other and show up for each other. And I thought that was honest and potentially healing to model that you don't just be a perfect parent because you read an article. You have to actually go through it. And, you know, I work with a lot of LGBT youth in New York and uh, at California, which is a houseless, you know, youth center. And we did a film program and, um, you know, they had all been rejected from their families for either gender identity or sexual identity or both. But the film they wanted to make was a narrative of the parents accepting them, actually because of their religion. And they were like, we've seen the rejection narrative over and over again. And I was like, oh man, these young kids who are up against so much are trying to teach, you know, the adults in the world around them how to accept <laughs> them. They're working so hard. And so I, I just feel like, more, and I don't think we can get there unless we're honest about that it's difficult. Mm -hmm. And so that frustration is, is very, you know, intentional. And, and, um, but I, but I wanted to also have empathy for, for the family as well, you know, that they're trying to do the right thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah. <laughs> it got intense. Uh, there's a scene uh, where the parents go out on a date with another couple, uh, good friends of theirs and the good friends are even trying or struggling to, bring up to you know greg and alex that their kid might be different mm -hmm. um and just trying to tread slowly and it just felt like um, there's gonna be a fight yeah <laughs> these adults are gonna fight over over their kids but it didn't happen that way yeah. but yeah. but even yes our conversation with our friends they're fragile especially you know when you're we're talking about our kids yeah well and also i mean that scene is sort of a a, a, a favorite of mine in that Priyanka's character Amal and um, is on a date with Darren, who's played by Asif, and he's 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 trying to be cool, but he's saying all the wrong things. He's bringing up Caitlyn Jenner, and he's bringing you know he's like what gender is their, their kids for? So it's like the parents are fragile for sure in some way, but also like Darren's like a, a bull in a china, you know, in a yeah. glass shop, just kind of like. Uh, but he's trying. He's actually trying. You know, the, sort of the way language and pop culture references play into it. Um, yeah, yeah, I love the yeah, awkwardness. Caitlyn Jenner, I was just like, Caitlyn Jenner again. Caitlyn's not the only transgender person. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that's. But I love that. Yeah. I mean, as a trans right. person, I actually love, and and had a real talk with with him because it is the pop reference. Mm -hmm. So it's not about her. It's about um. It's about a a. a what, like a lightning rod person who's taking all of this focus. Um, so very intentional about that because it is like a dated reference, but at the same time for Darren on a date who's just very in a straight world and trying to communicate, that's the only reference and it's so off and it's so reductive. I um, got that. Yeah. I got that, which leads me to my, my, my last question before we <laughs> open up to Q&A and, and everyone else because I know pr people probably have questions for you, uh, but who the movie actually is you know, in your opinion, was made for, sure. for you know, the audience? 
Oh, definitely for uh, families. And, you know, I think it's like not necessarily a, a queer trans film. It's really sort of looking at the world around. And, you know, again, I think that people can say it's so easy, but I think it's very difficult to you know, uh, manage these things or, or support your kid where they may be under, under attack or risk, you know, at risk. Like, I think these are all very tough things. And I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of our online n news handling of it, again, doesn't allow for that. So I would hope, I, I kind of wanted it to be like, you could live in Brooklyn or the Midwest or wherever, you know, to not make it such a like left or right issue, but just more of a human issue. I've certainly had the most difficult conversations with the closest people to me you know so kind of exploring that yeah yeah thank you yes questions for silence from our audience we have a mic uh, uh hey silas super hey. excited to see you hey. um you're talking about changing the core uh focus of a story i'd like to hear some things that you'd like to see coming up in the future with storytelling yeah Oh boy, there's just so many more more building from the ground up of 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 you know different storytellers, you know, like not the usual suspects, but but like whoever the story's representing, that that be from the writers' room and the showrunner or the you know like just again more centering of different different voices. I still feel like there's a lot of sidelining and sort of these anomalies, and a lot of times it's like oh, that one thing happened, so now they're going to make a bunch of those, and that's not what happens still. It's like the one, and then they're like, oh, we, didn't, we did that. So we checked that off our list for the next 10 years, you know, and it's like, I guess just to, you know, to really, um, yeah, to go further. I think there's just more work to do. You know, we're still just taking steps. Um, and as we see, you know, every time you take a step, there's all this pushback. So, um but but I really I think you know we need to do activism on so many levels right now and and I do see storytelling as part of that just trying to like further make connection between communities we have to try to reach each other through whatever way we can um, but yeah more centering of of other stories than than we usually get to. Yeah. A question from left field: um, If you were offered to direct an episode of Roseanne, would you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Roseanne's <laughs> controversy. I haven't watched. The, and the, actually, the, has, has anyone here watched any of it yet? Oh. The second episode actually deals with them dealing with this non gender yeah. nonconforming yeah. Uh, granddaughter of yeah. The, yeah. the two leads. And uh, in it, Roseanne basically takes the kid to school, sure. introduces him to the class, and says, you know, I'm in that way, Roseanne way, I know you'll all be very nice to him, or else, you know, she's, mm -hmm. she's there basically saying, I'm going to protect this kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it is an interesting mixture of so many controversies I know. and it's hard. audiences. And that's yeah. really kind of the heart of it. The audience that that show is maybe reaching yeah. is, I'm assuming, not this much of the same audience that will be watching a transparent episode. Or right, or a pose coming out in June. Um, but that's the new <laughs> show with that. Uh, in the eighties. Um, yeah, I prob I probably would. I, look, I grew up loving the show Roseanne and being like, oh, here's this amazing, you know, full full characters. That's all you want. You just want like you know when you're any of us that get depicted in these reductive ways. You're just like, ah, I'm just you know. There's so many other ways that we would love to see ourselves shown. And um, but uh, in terms of class, having grown up 
very working class, poverty class, you know, um, there's a lot of complications there. And, uh, but I haven't watched it. And, um, but usually for me, it's just, I have to find enough points of contact to be a good fit. It's not even like I'm, 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 I, um, I don't spend a lot of time tearing down other things. I just try to make things that I, I hope will add to a conversation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm curious about it. I haven't watched it, but I've been reading in the social media, all of the conversations back and forth yeah. and I'm sure there's going to be some interesting things and I think probably there's mental health issues going on with her which makes it really complicated mm-hmm. and not something this country is great at dealing with so um that adds another so probably no should they come a knocking <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a couple more questions before we say goodbye to Silas um I have a question okay and and you know and that's the conversation about cisgender actors and actresses who tell uh tr- you know stories from the transgender yeah. community and so yeah. there's been a lot of controversy even with transparent and yeah. tambor oh yeah you know so i it's so hard it's so hard to kind of accept not accept there are good points and then you yeah. know there are uh, points everybody uh, on whatever side it is the controversy yeah. and a lot of the conversation is you know we uh, uh, the transgender characters or the stories are being told or played by cisgender actors and actresses and you know where's the authenticity in that yeah i mean i feel like that's now moved to where it's not really acceptable and for a a cis actor to play a trans character i think and and that makes sense because it's a lot about also about access you know with pose it's five you know the, the stars are five trans women of color who are all incredible they're going to be stars and some of them already are but you know the talent's there and and people are quickly working on their craft because it's hard if you it's hard to study acting i studied acting before doing by hook or by crook but then i was like as a butch there's no roles for me so i'm you know there's no reason to pursue that it's just painful but now you know that's changing and um i think even you know in in transparent it helped create that it helped push that i mean in a way it helped design its own ending there and and i think that they'll probably even comment on that i think that they'll comment on exactly what the casting did um and then i think eventually what i'd love to see is you know trans actors be able to play cis roles and you know like eventually when you have equity because it's not you can't just give everyone the same you know everyone that has this much advantage you know if you give them the same you know, uh, Apple boxes stand on it. Still, all the people that haven't had access are not any closer. Um, but I think once there's more of an equity, you know, as a as a person who loves actors, I do think that um, that yeah, that it, that that doesn't have to live. You know, trans actors don't have to only play trans characters, and therefore, you know. But certainly, authenticity authenticity adds so much. I just did a scene, and you know, the women that were cast knew the world that they were in. So when we improved the val, you know, what they brought to that scene so alive you know as opposed to just you know you can't you can't fake that or when you do it feels very sanitized and and um you know i think people especially younger people they can tell when something's not authentic so. i was gonna say social media skills yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> i want to thank you so much for thank joining you. us here at the commonwealth club and being part of the taping for progressive thank voices you. network and for a movie like a kid like jake and okay. telling these stories so if you joined us here today or tuning in i think you know what you got from today's program is the importance of all of us in the community the lgbtq community to put ourselves out there and as nikki said take risks um, and tell stories and tell your own story, whether that's running for local office, running for judge, or making a movie. 
we have to be a part of the change. Thank you so much for joining us here uh, on the program, the Michelle Miao Show. We're here every Thursday at noon at the Commonwealth Club. You can hear all of the podcasts at michellemiao.com. And make sure you go and see A Kid Like Jake. It opens up in the Bay Area in the month of June, I believe. So Pride Month, very timely. Um, and um, if you want, if you're a San Francisco resident, vote for Nikki Solis. Seat 11, judge, San Francisco Superior Court. We'll see you next week. Thank you. We went to the first appointment, and my mom, Yvette, and I were in the room as they do that first ultrasound, and he was like this small. Little peanut. Yeah, but you could see the heartbeat. It was just pounding. I just cried. My mom cried. Yvette cried. It was it was very powerful. Started with my dream. Now here's a heartbeat. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com.